Here we go. Hi, everybody. First guest of the new year today, Darren McMahon. First, I'd like to say hello. Then I'd like to read your bio. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Uh, okay, so uh, you are the Mary Brinsmead Wheelock Professor of History at Dartmouth College. I was a visiting professor at Dartmouth College back in 2002. We can talk about our respective experiences in Hanover, New Hampshire after. Uh, you are the author of several books and editor of several books, co-editor. Let me just read them for our folks. Uh, so here we've got... Uh, Enemies of the Enlightenment, the French Counter-Enlightenment, and the Making of Modernity 2001. The one that made me aware of who you are, the one that I'm reading right here, this guy, Happiness, a History, awarded the Best Book of the Year honors by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Library Journal, and Slate Magazine. Wow. Then uh, Divine Fury, a History of Genius. Some interesting things that we could talk about that one. And then several uh, co-edited books, The Enlightenment, Critical Concepts in Historical Studies, Rethinking Modern European Intellectual History and Genealogies of Genius. Did I cover pretty much everything, Darren? Pretty much, absolutely. All right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay, so then do, do, let me just mention to people how we connected. You are a historian by profession. Uh, I'm working right now on my latest book, which uh, I need to submit by the end of March. So the clock is sticking with my uh, publisher, although they're very nice about never reminding me of the clock. Uh, and I'm, the book is about the recipe or a recipe for the good life. And so I'm immersing myself in all sorts of uh, treaties on happiness and contentment and well-being and so on. All, and, and the book is partly, you know, my personal journey through happiness, if you'd like, but also backed by science. And then I came across your book, Happiness, A History, where a historian is, is kind of tracing the concept of history throughout time. And I thought, oh, I need to speak to this guy. So I thought maybe we could start, Darren, with just you giving us as as briefly as you can, a sort of summary of that traject that historical trajectory of happiness. A summary of the historical uh, trajectory <laughs> of happiness. Yeah, as briefly as I can. Okay. Well, um, look, I, I I I got interested in in the subject of happiness in part out of uh, teaching at Columbia as a postdoc. They have a a great books program they call Contemporary Civilizations, a kind of core uh, of readings. Um, that begin in the ancient world and go to the present. And it, it struck me as I was teaching this course and reading these books that I'd claimed to have read for many years but never actually had, that, uh, you know, that happiness is the central, central notion in, in the Western intellectual tradition and it turns out really in, in, in all major intellectual traditions. Uh, and so the idea was to sort of trace uh, changing conceptions um, from their emergence in, in, in Western discussion, the time of the Greeks, uh, to the present. Um, and so uh, I, I begin with with uh, people like Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle, um, who uh, pose this really central question, which becomes the question for classical philosophy, and that is, how do you attain the good life? Um, how do you uh, attain happiness through through conscious action? And and just that very move in its own right is an interesting one. Um, I like I like to point out that the word for happiness in every Indo-European language is cognate with luck. So hap is a you know an old Norse and an old English word. Uh, it means fortune. Uh, we we still use it in words like happenstance or perhaps. But the idea embedded in this in this term and 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 in so many others is that happiness is not something that you can really can control for yourself. That happiness is is dictated by the gods or by fate or by fortune, uh, by luck. 
uh, and you know you have it or you don't uh, or if you have it now it may be taken away really quickly but there's not a whole lot you can do in terms of how you live your life uh, in, in order to bring it about and I think that's really a received idea for so many cultures in which uh, a notion of human agency um, you know takes time to develop right that uh, for for so many people uh, life uh, is is happens to them they don't make uh, uh, their own fortune or own fate for themselves so when when somebody like Socrates says all of us want to be happy how can we bring that about it's a really a, a kind of crucial shift and it's it's indicative of a broader shift uh, that's going on not just in Greece but in um, in many of the major uh, religious traditions around the world that um, sometimes are uh, singled out as, as, as occurring during the axial age, the sort of roughly the first millennium before uh, the common era, uh, when in, in religious tradition after religious tradition, something like that question gets posed, right? The Buddha does the same thing, right? Uh, life is suffering, uh, but how can we change uh, our circumstances in order to, uh, to bring about a kind of uh, happiness or contentment? So I begin in, in there, and then um, in the Western tradition, I look at how uh, those uh, classical notions get received and Christianized. Um, and um, again, there are you know analogies in other um, in other religious traditions, but in the Christian tradition, you know essentially what happens is that happiness gets displaced from this life to the next. So Saint Augustine, the great uh, the great uh, father of the church says, you know, that perfect happiness is not of this life because of original sin. Uh, we are in the world. We're constantly striving, constantly searching for something. And that very inability to satisfy ourselves is, is resonant of sin for uh, for Augustine uh, and an indication that we, we're not complete. We're not whole and we won't be made complete or whole uh, until we have God's grace uh, and, and know um, God's bounty in, in the next life. So on some level uh, in this Christian conception, uh, happiness is death, right? Or happiness is the everlasting uh, life of death. Um, so uh, we can we could complicate that uh, in, in, in many ways. There are different Kind of Christian conceptions, but on, on, you know, roughly speaking, this is the, the idea that holds until um, the the age of enlightenment, uh, the the long 18th century, uh, which I see as this crucial revolution in in human expectations, when when considerable numbers of people, for the really the first time in human history, are presented with the novel idea that happiness is not just a great attainment through, you know, supreme virtue as it was for the Greeks or for um, many of the religious traditions, that happiness was not just, uh, uh, you know, a product of luck or the bounty of the gods or uh, for God's chosen, but happiness was something that we ought to have in the world by virtue of being human beings, that happiness was something that was uh, really our, our kind of natural due. Um, and that proclamation uh, it gets disseminated in the 18th century, and you see for the first time people talking about uh, a right to happiness, right? Not just a right to pursue happiness, but a right to happiness, and you see this in, in documents in the 18th century. Um, and, and, and gradually that, that spreads, and uh, I'm you know, uh, summarizing a, a much more complex story, but 
one of the, the, the themes that I drive in the book is the way in which that 18th century assertion has uh, really become kind of part and parcel of the world that we live in today, where I think we tend to think of happiness as something that we should have. Uh, happiness is something um, uh, that, that we're supposed to have. And when we're not happy, uh, we, we ask what's wrong, either with uh, the world or with ourselves. But it's, it's become a kind of assumption in a way that it just wasn't for earlier cultures. I think you've done a, a nice job in summarizing uh, some of the trajectory of happiness. But I guess a couple of questions. So, so in your description, you're basically arguing that where we as- ascribe, or rather, you know, do we ascribe happiness as something that is fatalistic? Therefore, there's nothing that I can do. There's no attribution. There's no causal agent in me that can allow me to be happy happy or not it's written in the sky versus other conceptions that say no here are steps a b c d by which i can become happy and so i guess beyond that debate the next debate would be if i concede the point that part of happiness stems from my personal actions in the world as i live it then Mm -hmm. we can still disagree on how i achieve happiness right so even within the greeks there are many different trajectories by which once i concede that It's not only up to the gods and to the sky to decide if I'm going to be happy or not. We can still disagree in a myriad of ways as to how we get there. Are you able to maybe give us a brief overview? Let's go with the ancient Greeks because I really immersed my... Yeah, so what what are some... So we got, you know, the Stoics and so on. What are some of the big differences across all those schools? Yeah, the philosophical schools of the ancient world are in many ways a kind of competition for uh, acolytes, right? Uh, And uh, each uh, sage... Uh, master philosopher uh, presenting a, a different route to happiness, right? All claiming to have the answers. Medicine for the soul. And this is one of uh, common metaphors that the, the Greeks use as, uh, you know, a philosopher as somebody who helps to cure us uh, from from our ills, our human ills, right? And so uh, the gamut is 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 really wide. Um, on one one end of the extreme, you can uh, look at the Epicurean tradition. Uh, Epicurus um, <clears throat> believed that um, human beings um, were. Uh, well, first of all, we were completely material. Uh, there was no uh, um, uh, no um, immaterial soul. Uh, he believed that there were gods, but they didn't intervene in the world. And that happiness for him was essentially pleasure-pain calculus. Um, pleasure uh, was good, and we should cultivate it as best we can. Now, um, people who read Epicurus know that uh, that wasn't just a license for total hedonism. Epicurus was was actually an ascetic philosopher, and he understood that, you know, many pleasures um, bring uh, greater pains. Uh, and so he advocated a kind of, you know, a, a really close balance between um, uh, pleasure and, 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 and pain and and tried to cultivate the ability to take pleasure in very simple things. Uh, you don't need a lavish meal to make you happy. Uh, you should learn to take pleasure in uh, a glass of water and a piece of bread. Uh, and if you can do that in life, if you can uh, learn to take pleasure um, in simple things, well, then there'll be pleasures everywhere. Um, so that's one kind of one conception uh, of, of happiness. Uh, another one that um, I think is you know, on, is still important today is, is Aristotle's. Uh, Aristotle's notion um, that happiness is a life lived in accordance with virtue. Um, 
virtue for Aristotle as a, a, a mean between extremes, and we should try to cultivate that mean in many different facets of our life. And Aristotle uh, lays out a whole program of, uh, of good living um, that um, uh, involves, you know, involves the uh, cultivation of our minds, but also of our bodies uh, that um, uh, to some extent, you know, assumes uh, basic kind of material comforts, um, but then in addition to that, um, puts an emphasis on, uh, on other virtues, virtues of character, um, which I think is particularly compelling. And although Aristotle recognizes that um, that happiness should have a component of feeling like the Epicureans, uh, he doesn't see happiness purely as pleasure-pain calculus. Um, in fact, he understands that uh, the, the happy man uh, uh, will often undergo a good deal of pain and a good deal of adversity, and we don't want to take that to the extreme, but uh, we need to assume it in a, in a life well-lived. Between you know that gamut, then you get all di- sorts of different uh, philosophical traditions, as you well know, uh, the Stoic tradition, um, the um, uh, the Platonic tradition. Um, but one of the things that unites uh, these groups, and I think makes them different from uh, us today, is that um, even Epicurus, who thinks of happiness in many ways as a kind of uh, sensation of, of pleasure, conceives of happiness not as a momentary. Uh, a feeling, not something that puts a smile on your face the way that we tend to talk about happiness today and the way we've tended to talk about it since the 18th century. He conceives of happiness as a as a characterization of a life, a characterization of a, a life well lived. Um, and this is this is, in fact, part of Aristotle's famous definition of happiness, that that happiness is 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 not um, is not momentary. It's not a subjective state. It's a description of an optimal life. And that's what all these Greek sages are really after, right? How to um, how to put together a human life in the best possible way. And I think um, that aspect of happiness um, is, is somewhat underplayed today. Uh, we think of happiness as, you know, have a Coke and a smile and uh, uh, a laugh and good feeling and less as a characterization, characterization of an entire an entire life. Yeah, so one of the things that, uh, as I'm as I'm working on my book, I try to take some of these ancient ideas and then link them through a bridge to the current empirical sciences, right? Where we test yeah. some of these ideas. And what amazed me, I, I mean, I'd always loved and and uh, revered the ancient Greeks, but what amazed me, and here it reminds me of a story that Nassim Taleb, uh, I don't know if you know him, the the Lebanese author, was a good friend of mine. Yeah. He, he once joked with me, teased me, and said, I don't know what you study in psychology. Everything that needs to be known about psychology, the ancient Greeks have already covered it. Now, I thought he was being a bit playful, but you know, now that I read the ancient Greeks, I think he was onto something because, for example, you look at the Stoics, you know, they're, the, the way they argue, well, look, if you know, don't worry about something that you can't control. It's really how you respond to an event that really is within your control. Well, that already has very direct links to cognitive behavior therapy, which is one of the foundational, you know, therapeutic so, interventions that we see in clinical practice. Uh, the Aristotle mean, I have a whole chapter in my forthcoming book where I talk about seeking the sweet spot, right? Well, the sweet spot is is the is the mean of Aristotle. And I demonstrate in the book that so many phenomena 
whether they be at the neuronal level, at the individual level, or at the aggregate societal level, follow an inverted U-shape. The inverted U-shape meaning that that which is in the middle is optimal. Mm. Too, too little is not good. Too much is not good. And the middle is right. And I actually argue that it is probably the the, the the most fundamental universal law that you see most often in nature to see that inverted U. And so although they didn't have the, the weaponry of the empirical sciences, they were operating within the realm of philosophizing, they were exactly right. So the next question, I, I understand that you're not a classicist, but what is it in the water that they were drinking that allowed those particular folks to be so astoundingly wise across several millenn- um, several centuries at the very least? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you make this point. It's, it's one that I, I frequently make as well. And, I, you know, I joke with my psychologist friends that uh, they're just figuring out what's already been known. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, there's more to it than that. But, you know, uh, my, my friend John Haidt, the, the psychologist, sure. you know, his early book, uh, the subtitle is, is, is Finding um, Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom. And, and, and John does precisely this, right? Looks at the ancient wisdom traditions through the lens of uh, contemporary social science and, and, and psychological science and says, hey, you know, here's where there's uh, a really, really interesting correspondence. So, well, what's in the water with the Greeks? I mean, I guess I would even broaden that. And, um, you know, I used this term before, the axial age, which is the, uh, as I say, this description of, of, of this really incredible movement in, uh, in human history in the first millennia, when so many of our Moral foundations are laid. Our moral axes are are, are laid in in Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism. Um, later in Christianity, Islam, growing out of uh, uh, of Judaism, and um, <clears throat> all those traditions are wrestling. I think with what it means to uh, live a good life and what are the conditions for bringing that about. And in doing so, and in doing so over the course of hundreds uh, and eventually a thousand years, they hit upon all kinds of truths. And so your point about the Greeks, uh, I, I would just extend. I mean, um, you know, really, really amazing things are happening in China in, 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 at exactly the same time. And the Confucian tradition and Tao's traditions are, are rich, rich, rich in terms of thinking about the psychology of, of human well-being. Beautiful. So I guess the next question is to uh, look at the history of your historical trajectory, right? So it's kind of a form of meta history, which is the following question. I mean, you, you studied histories of history of emotions, history of genius. I think you're working on a book on history of equality slash inequality, history of happiness, uh, history of ideas. How do you decide which concept or event or period you're going to spend your next two, three, five years working on? How does that process work? Unfortunately, six, seven, or eight. But, yeah, okay, uh, fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was trained as a historian of the 18th century. That's where I cut my teeth. And my first book, Enemies of the Enlightenment, was about opposition to the Enlightenment and the kind of origins of conservative thought. Um, and uh, really, all of my projects so far have have singled out key uh, notions that come to the fore in the 18th century uh, and that have long afterlives and, of course, had backstories as well. Uh, so happiness is really, um, as, I, as I intimated a little bit earlier, uh, an idea that comes to public consciousness in a major way and, and gets actually politicized for the first time in the 18th century. Um, the, the great French revolutionary Saint-Just uh, uh, during the, the, the Jacobin radical phase of the French Revolution stands up in the 
French National Convention and says happiness is a new idea in Europe. And uh, that's that's an exaggeration to some extent, because as we've just been saying, of course, happiness has old roots in uh, uh, in Greece and elsewhere. But uh, to the extent that it gets politicized uh, and, and, and publicized uh, in the 18th century, Saint-Just had a point. So happiness is a, a, a key 18th century idea. Genius, as it turns out, the subject of my uh, last book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius, is also an idea that comes to the fore um, in the 18th century. And the genius as a kind of new cultural hero uh, is really invented in the 18th century. Um, and the same is true with the subject of my current book uh, on equality. Equality is an idea that although it has deep uh, roots, uh, religious and otherwise, and of course is very much uh, an idea um, on the uh, radar today, is one nonetheless that comes to the fore in the 18th century. And so I guess I'm a, you know, as the French would say, a dissuitiamiste by training uh, and, 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 and kind of preoccupation orientation, but I'm interested in concepts that, um, uh, that continue to have an afterlife that, that matter to us today. And so tracing those genealogies of, uh, of ideas that, that come to the fore and then continue to play out uh, and, and preoccupy us to the, to the present are uh, very much in my interest. I mean, I'm thinking of I mean, the, I'm thinking of the motto of uh, the French Republic, isn't it? Fraternité, égalité, and laïcité, right? So I, Liberté. Liberté, yeah, liberté, yeah. sorry. Liberty and equality, sure, absolutely. So so that's uh, where the equality could potentially be coming from, right? I mean, in terms of you tackling it in your next book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually like these other books. I, um, uh, I'm beginning way back. And in fact, even before the ancient world, I have a whole chapter on the way that people have thought about hunter-gatherer societies and uh, ascribed a kind of equality to them. Uh, and then I talk about... Uh, ideas of equality in, in the ancient uh, religious traditions uh, and in um, the name ancient Greece as well, their uh, rhetoric and discussions of, 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 of um, equality. Uh, but again, the, the 18th century is this kind of crucial uh, turning point. And so, yeah, that French uh, preoccupation with equality um, that, that you have at the time of the French Revolution grows out uh, of a whole century of uh, discussion around it in, in the 18th century. You know, uh, a few days ago, you may or may not be aware of this, uh, the, the great, uh, now late Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson passed away. Yeah, and, sure. uh, and you'll see in a second why I'm mentioning him, because I'm going to link it to our conversation of equality. Uh, so when, he's, when he was famously asked to comment about communism slash socialism, he said, great idea, wrong species. And what he meant by that is he, he's an entomologist by training. He studies social ants. And of course, social ants, their, their uh, societal organization is that everybody is equal other than the reproductive queen. But for humans, while it is a great idea that we be equal under the law, we're not equal in our potential. We're not equal in our drive. We're not equal in our height. We're not e so. Uh, so the idea of trying to impose a particular economic and political structure on humans when it doesn't fit their human nature is problematic. That's why communism and socialism has failed wherever it's been tried. Now, today, we often conflate either willfully or ignorantly the concept of equality with equity, equity being the idea that equality of outcomes is what we should be seeking, whereas, of course, I think any truly classical liberal person would think that equality of opportunities is what we should always be striving for. Do you tackle these kinds of issues, equality versus equity and so on and so forth? 
I do. Um, in fact, I just finished my chapter on the kind of Marxian uh, tradition and thinking about equality in, 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 in Marxian thought. And ironically, I mean, Marx is, is, is somewhat scathing uh, about equality. He sees equality as a kind of bourgeois ideology and, uh, and recognizes very clearly, as as you say, that uh, human uh, potential, human ability are very different. Uh, and so in his kind of imagination of what um, a communist utopia would look like, uh, there's no indication at all that you would actually have uh, equality of, uh, uh, of, um, uh, of resources. You'd have different resources uh, for different people. Now, obviously, things don't uh, turn out that way in practice. And, uh, uh, and many of uh, uh, Marx's readers kind of over uh, overlook the the fine points and the fine discussion of uh, of equality in his thought, but but sure, absolutely. I mean, these kind of major differences between classical liberal and uh, Marxian or socialist discussions of happiness uh, are, are part and parcel of the uh, of the discussion. So coming back to happiness, I'll I'll ask maybe one or two more questions, then we'll go to a whole bunch of other topics. Uh, so one of the things that interests me, uh, you know, as someone who studies consumer behavior, uh, and certainly as an evolutionist, are things that are culturally uh, sp- culture specific versus human mm-hmm. universal. So for example, in advertising, you talk about local advertising versus global advertising. Global advertising would be Coca-Cola decides from their headquarters in Atlanta to develop one advertising campaign, which they then uh, you know, transport to all cultures because there's some universal theme that everybody will mm. understand. Local uh, advertising would be you have to tweak it to the cultural contingencies of each society. And so now I'm going to use that framework to talk about happiness. So what, are there cross-culture across all the traditions that you've covered in your historical treaties of happiness what are the elements of happiness that you can point to that are truly culturally specific that don't manifest themselves in the same way in other cultures versus things that are absolutely universal and then the second part of this question same question but using a temporal metric what are things that are temporary temporally invariant irrespective of the era people have thought about this metric as the same regarding happiness mm. versus things that are era constrained can you answer both those questions sure i can try i mean uh if we if we do the global brand first um, sure Pleasure is the global brand, and Coca-Cola understands that very well, right? Uh, Coke and a smile, right? Have a nice cold Coke, and that'll bring you uh, happiness. And and, and this is uh, clearly a kind of universal human characteristic. We we are wired, we're created as as as, as human animals uh, to desire pleasure and to flee pain, um, and that's wired into our uh, our makeup. Uh, and uh, all human beings everywhere uh, seek pleasure, and they always have. Um, <clears throat> What is also interesting, though, is that at the time, again, of the the axial uh, revolutions, one of the constant uniting very different religious and philosophical traditions is the rejection of that idea, or at least the rejection of the idea that pleasure and pleasure alone can bring us happiness. And of course, all these traditions are onto something profound. You know, uh, as a student of evolution, um, that our desire to pursue pleasure is built into us, but we never get enough pleasure. <laughs> uh, or when we get enough, we get bored and then we want something more. Um, I, I like to point out that the, the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, you know, this word pursuit uh, is one that we focus on less than the word happiness. And um, in 18th century English, 
to pursue meant to follow in hostility, right? So you think of kind of pursuing something with a, you know, like you hunt it. In fact, the French say la chasse au bonheur, the, the, the hunt for happiness. And if you think about that for a little bit, when you're hunting or stalking happiness, and what do you what do you what do you do when you actually get it? Well, you have to you know shoot it or kill it or put it down. There's a kind of frenetic uh, side to um, to our desire for pleasure, right? And and how that wears off. The psychologists, as you know, call this the hedonic treadmill, sure. like a little boom to come back. So I think one of the things that all these religious traditions locked into is that, you know, constantly pursuing pleasure leaves us dissatisfied, right? Or leaves us feeling a little bit empty. And so all of the axial traditions then imagine a kind of higher happiness or, or uh, uh, contentment sometimes, uh, they put it, that, that would go beyond mere uh, pleasure pain calculus. So how to uh, obtain pleasure beyond, uh, obtain happiness beyond pleasure, beyond um, honor and gratification. Um, and there I think you can see some really interesting uh, constants as well as clearly all kinds of um, um, you know d- distinctions I like to point out that you know all the religious traditions um, value human friendship and love uh, and we know uh, as social sci- psychologists uh, tell us that you know that that, that that human beings are social creatures that our friendships and our, our relationships uh, to family and, and, and loved ones are crucial and correlate very highly with subjective well-being or happiness. So, you know, to put a kind of moral valence on friendship, as Aristotle does, for example, in the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, and relate it to happiness is, is, is crucial, and I think many of the religious traditions uh, put their finger on this. Um, cultivating hope, seeing the world uh, through uh, hopeful lenses um, matters a great deal. And we know that, uh, you know that that optimistic people tend to be uh, uh, happy people or happier people. Um, and so, you know, religions bid us to do that, see the good even uh, despite uh, the evil, despite the suffering. Um, being thankful or grateful for what we have, almost every religious tradition, you know, begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank God. Uh, for uh, the bounty that we have, thank God for uh, family. Thank God for this opportunity to be on this uh, this world. Give thanks and, and thanksgiving. That's again an, almost a universal in all these religious traditions and philosophical traditions. And we know that actually, you know, expressing gratitude, writing gratitude letters, telling the people that um, that do uh, kind things for us that we we care and recognize that also correlates uh, with happiness. So I think this is another one of these kind of universals that's singled out. Giving to others, right, redounds to you. Uh, there's a there's a, a Chinese proverb um, to the effect that if you know if you want to maximize your happiness, uh, um, give give to others, right, um, and and and. We also know that you know philanthropy and uh, uh, happiness have uh, interesting uh, ties, and so I think the religious traditions sort of uh, focus in on this. Now, the way that that gets expressed in particular cultures and particular moments at particular times varies tremendously, right. and so then you get you know this is when the the micro branders come in right and right. do their work. Uh, uh, but I think that that they that so many of um, the traditions and and this is one of the things I think positive psychologists today have discovered. Um, uh, do span cultures and span time. There are universals in terms of 
uh, what we as human beings need uh, and desire and want. Well, what you, when you started your uh, your answer to, to my last question, you you referred to sort of bonding, social bonding, and friendship. Uh, the psychiatrist Georges Vaillant, who used to lead the uh, Harvard yeah. study yeah. Of, of, of adult development, uh, I guess you're, you're familiar with him. Do you know who that is? Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I've, I've met him. It's uh, uh, a while now. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I, I think. I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said. This is not a direct quote, but based on his years as the director of this sort of, I think. I think it's now up to about 80 years that it's been going, this study, sort of tracking people's, you know, as they go through all the life stages of their adult development. And he said, you know, the, the one lesson that you need to take away from all of our studies is that, you know, relationships matter. And that's, you know, and, and, then, and then others have tried to quantify that in terms of, you know, uh, not having relationships is equivalent to smoking, you know, three packs of cigarettes a day, right? <laughs> have you seen some of those studies? I have, I have, and yeah. and and, and it, it is exactly speaking to what you're saying. I mean, and I I notice it, I guess, on a personal level now that we're, I mean, at least, well, maybe we're a bit more draconian in Quebec than you guys in the U.S. in terms of all the lockdowns and the curfews. That you know, when I when I go on a walk with one of my good friends, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm one of my good friends is a professor of psychology at my university. He's a clinical psychologist, and we we always do walk and talk sessions where we. We go for 90-minute walks and, you know, we could be talking about Wittgenstein and then we could be talking about uh, radiologists who do uh, MRI studies of, of, of uh, paintings and we were going all over the place. And then I come yeah. home and I'm invigorated in a way that is very different than I would be if I were sitting in solitude reading a great book, which is also pleasurable and intoxicating. But the, right. the mere fact of sharing these ideas with another person that you care about is, is truly one of the great pleasures of life. So I'm, I'm totally with you. It is, and, and and it turns out that the physical proximity matters too. Uh, it's wonderful to chat with you like this, uh, remotely uh, via Zoom, and we've done a lot of that during the pandemic. Um, and that's better than you know sitting in silence in one's office. But it doesn't seem to have the same benefits that yeah. that one gets from actual physical proxi proximity to friends and 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 so forth. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, yeah. You are a co-editor, so I'm going to hit you with a question on a completely different topic. Well, I guess it's kind of related. You're co-editor of a series uh, with University of Chicago Press, uh, I think the, the Life of Ideas, is that, did I get that right? Correct, uh, yeah. What would be, if I could put you on the spot, the singular greatest idea ever devised? I think you could probably guess what my answer would be, but let's hear what yours would be. Um. Boy, I, I'm never good at these kind of things. People ask me what's, what's you know, the, the best album. Uh, first one that you I could have, think of or... Well, you know, um, first of all, you know, I would kind of want to parse the question, what is an idea? And that gets complicated. But I think love is a pretty good idea. Uh, and okay. uh, it, it resonates in every culture. So I'm going to go with love. And you got to go with love. That. All right. Uh, can you guess what I would say? Because I'm, I'm leaving it to the intellectual realm. Oh, OK. Um, evolution. Well, uh, sorry. The theory of evolution. OK. That would be that would be my. So you meant as a concept, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, you well, were broadening I, it. I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's that's a pretty darn good one. No question. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, for, I mean, this is an idea that explains all biodiversity on life, you know, whether it be flora or fauna. And, of course, yeah. in evolutionary psychology, it explains the most important organ that defines our personhood. It's called the human mind. And yet you could explain the mechanism of evolution in grade nine biology so that you could yeah. explain something so elegantly, succinctly, and simply, and that yet that could explain life 
to me seems yeah. like it could be certainly a good contender for the greatest idea ever devised. I got the I had the opportunity to go to the Galapagos uh, a number of years ago and as as part of the trip I gave a series of lectures on Darwin and I'm not a specialist on Darwin although I I work on 19th century intellectual history and um it was just such an incredible pleasure to steep myself and uh in his his thought for a couple of months as I prepared these lectures and uh yeah um well as you'd say a, a leading contender for uh, <laughs> the great idea speaking about sociality and bonding so just if, about a Two weeks ago, one of my former undergraduate students who has since left sort of the business world and pursued his passion as an artist sent me two hand-drawn, well, hand-drawn, yeah, I mean, two paintings of Darwin, uh, which I have uh, very proudly displayed on my social media. I mean, they're, 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 they're museum quality. And uh, the, 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 the sense of pride that I felt that I could have had such a positive influence on this student mm. that he would then be willing 10, 12, 14 years later, I can't remember, <laughs> be doing this for me. It's, it's not like he charged me. It was, of course, uh, they were gifts. Uh, that speaks again to this human bonding. It's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, all right, let's go on with some other stuff. Uh, genius. Uh, now, here is so much stuff that I, I could talk about. Uh, number one, as, as soon as I read your bio and I saw genius, the first name that came to mind was Dean Simington. Uh, mm -hmm. and I, okay, so I guess you do know who, who that is. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, you know, it, it, these are people that I've, I've worked with and, and done, and Dean and I have done events together and, and so forth. Oh, yeah. Now, well, that's interesting that you say you've worked together because Dean might arguably be the, the person who is the most productive scholar who's published <laughs> the most single authored things. Am I right? Yeah. Now... Uh, well, I don't know the exact metrics, but he's hugely productive. And yeah, when I say work together, I mean, we've been on panels and, you know, uh, done talks and, and the like. We've never actually collaborated on, on, on scholarship. Uh, and as you say, he doesn't need any help. <laughs> but, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very interested. I mean, I don't know if you have any insights about this before we get it, before we drill down into mm -hmm. the actual study of geniuses. You know, I wonder why that would be. So, for example, I, I could speak to myself and, 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 and I might even mention this in my next book. So one of the traits that I have, which can be both construed as a as a as a good thing or a bad thing, so maybe it kind of speaks to the mm -hmm. Aristotle, uh, you know, golden mean issue. Uh, I'm very punctilious, very perfectionist, very morally scrupulous, maybe pathologically so. So that <laughs> it takes a lot for me to trust someone else. So that if someone else is going to have their name on something that my name is on, then I'm worried, mm -hmm. were they as careful? Did they scam any of the data? Were they as honest? Were they? And so I know that I would have been, however productive I've been in my life, I would have been a lot more productive had I been more open to, you know, uh, you know, collaborating with people. And so I wonder if you have any insight as to if that could be driving what, because I mean, unless he is someone who is a misanthrope and he hates every human being, why would it be that he would have never found any solace or not solace, any any opportunities in collaborating with others? You know, honestly, I, don't, I, 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 I know Dean well enough to know that he's certainly not a misanthrope. He's a really jolly, enthusiastic, right. open mind person. And, and I don't have a direct 
answer to that question. I mean, the, the question of collaboration in uh, intellectual creative enterprises is really interesting. And, yeah. you know, there there's a, a literature on the kind of genius of groups and that special thing that happens when, you know, McCartney and Lennon get in a room together and boom, magic happens, right? Uh, and that can happen in, in different types of creative endeavor and arguably always does. Even the, you know, the we, we have a myth in some ways of the genius as lone creator and lone producer and, and, and geniuses uh, are always in embedded in networks. I'm looking uh, at, you know, your your book there on evolutionary psychology and the business sciences behind you with a picture of Darwin on the cover. And, and of course, Darwin uh, had a huge network of interlocutors. And then he had a, a kind of family apparatus that was, you know, providing his meals and looking after his, uh, um, his, his, his basic needs that allowed him then to do the work that he did. And, and this is always the case. So there's always a social component to creativity and intellectual labor. Um, you know what what it is um, that that drives uh, um, you know people like Dean or people who 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 produce an awful lot is an interesting question in its own right. Um, <clears throat> Darwin's cousin Francis Galton, uh, whom we we tend to associate rightly with with eugenics. He's the father of eugenics and uh, and the kind of darker side to that, but. But Galton actually cut his teeth as a student of genius. His, his very yeah. first published work is, is called Hereditary Genius. And, and this was just the question Galton asked. You know, what is it that, that distinguishes or characterizes those special beings he called geniuses that occur one in a million or one in ten million in a, in a population pool? And one of the traits that he identified was the capacity for hard labor. Right? Yeah. In other words, you needed a kind of you know threshold of an intellig- of intelligence, uh, and you needed to aspire to things that mattered. Uh, but you also needed the capacity for hard labor, that ability to kind of just throw yourself uh, into the fray again and again and again. Um, and that that clearly is a distinguishing. Well, maybe it's this word. Sorry to interrupt you. How about this word? Grit, right here. Well, exactly. Another one of my friends. There's Angela. I mean, she actually. Uh, there's a long footnote. Uh, that deals with me in that book. Uh, funnily enough, we we know each other for many years, and uh, I told her a story um, about how uh, growing up in uh, California in the uh, 1970s, uh, I didn't make the uh, didn't meet the the thresholds to be in a mentally gifted mind program that the uh, California public schools had was administering, and that so pissed me off. Uh, that I, I think I've spent most of my life trying to show those people they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> I think you've uh, done a good job showing them. Well, she talks about that story as a, you know, kind of, uh, and I don't know if I have grit, but I certainly have the capacity for hard labor. And uh, um, I think that's, you know, that's, that is an important thing. Well, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm often asked, you know, what are your tips, uh, professor, for, you know, being a successful writer? And, uh, and of course, you have to have a talent to, to synthesize material, to tell good stories, to be a good raconteur, to write well. Uh, but you also have to have the discipline of every day, whether you're feeling down or not, whether you're feeling up for it or not, to write a certain number of words. Otherwise, that book, that 70,000, 80,000, 90,000 words are not going to write themselves. And so it really, truly requires this incredible discipline to say, no matter what, every day I've got to hit my 300 words or 400 words per day marker, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I, I liken writing to long distance running. It's like running a marathon, you know, and 
half the time your feet hurt and you know you're gasping for breath but you just keep plodding on and eventually you get there but in your case i mean and i don't know if it's in all history and i guess we'll, we'll talk about some of the uh, the field of history in a second in more details but in in your case i mean your biggest works have been books whereas in many disciplines as you know uh, books are considered second-class citizens to the peer-reviewed journal, which for me, I mean, all those distinctions are so ridiculous. I mean, I'm in the business mm. of creating knowledge and then disseminating knowledge, and I'll use any vehicle and any platform to do so, including having conversations with wonderful guests such as yourself. So this, these kinds of distinctions don't matter to me. But why is it that in history, it seems to be the case that you know you don't have as much of the peer-reviewed, but more of the here are my three books for my tenure dossier. Why does that work that way? Yeah, I mean, of course, we do have a you know an extensive network of journals that are sure. peer-reviewed and so forth. Um, but you're right that the, the book or uh, the monograph is the um, is the kind of crucial marker in our field, uh, more so than than articles, as in, in, in many of the social and, and natural sciences. And you know, you could give a historical response to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Go for it. Always been. It hasn't been always the case that that people wrote books, that the academics wrote books. Uh, they began to do so only towards the end of the. Uh, then, I mean, well, clearly people have written books for a long time, but as, as a kind of marker of academic produ- productivity, the book or the monograph emerges at the end of the 19th and early in the 20th century. Um, and, it, you know, it, it may have seen its day. I mean, um, I kind of hate to say that as, a, as an author of books, but I sometimes feel a little bit like, you know, a purveyor of eight-track tapes might have felt in the, uh, the, the late 70s or early 80s. You know, it's not clear that this is the, the cutting-edge technology of the future. And now, you know, we have podcasts and all other uh, ways, many, so many different ways of getting ideas across. And, you know, not, not as many people read books uh, as they once uh, did. And it may be the case that the, the monograph has the kind of marker of, um, uh, of academic excellence uh, in, in the um, – in, in in the humanistic discipline uh is 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 going to be a thing of the past doesn't that sadden you sure um but you know it's it's i mean, i i think of my own children my son's 14 my daughter's 11 um and you know these people uh are wired to the teeth and uh they're they're taking in media in so many different forms but you know i can't get them to read a magazine, let alone, you know, sit down and read a book. Now I forced them to do so, but they don't do that as a matter of choice the way that I did when I was growing yeah. up and like so many of us did. And I think, you know, that's, um, they're, they're not outliers. They're, uh, um, you know, they're, they're indicative of what's happening uh, today. I, I do. I mean, th- it does worry me a lot because I fa- I face the same struggles with my children who are a bit younger than yours. Uh, because as you probably know, and I, I, I don't know if there, I, I don't know if there is a reference to this, but I've heard it enough times that I'd like to think that it's true that the number one predictor of your children's success is the number of books that are in your parents' home. Have you, have you heard that stat before? I haven't heard that one. I've heard things like it, but well, uh, we've got a lot of books here. Well, exactly. And so do I. If you, I don't know if anyone's reading them, but <laughs> but but what, my point is that there is a yeah. unique set of skills that comes with immerse. I mean. You know, I, yeah. sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm to speak of your book, Happiness, uh, you know, the last probably two weeks, that's what I've been reading uh, late at night. And I'm stuck in St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. Not, not very light reading at one in the morning when I'm having a hard time no, sleeping. Not. Sorry about that, but it probably helps you to get to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deep in. There is an ecstasy. There is an intellectual pleasure. 
that comes uniquely from me doing that process. And I think that if we don't find a way to rekindle that uh, reflex in our children, I, I don't think you can be truly profound as a thinker if you don't have the reflex to read, no? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I, I, I would even say, you know, I don't know that democracies work when people don't read and have the capacity for following sustained lines of, uh, of thought and, and development, you know, more so than a, a, a newspaper article. I mean, something about the long form of a, 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 of a book that seems crucial to serious thinking, but um, yeah, and from the from the perspective, I was gonna say from the perspective of the the creator of that knowledge. I mean, us. Uh, look, when I write an academic paper, the content is different across papers, but the template is already told. Right? There is an introduction. There is a literature review. There is hypotheses. There is methodology. There is statistical analyses. There is conclusion. So, so the the narrative or the template for the narrative is told. What's beautiful about writing a book, you know, as, as you certainly know, yes, I start with a rough outline of what I'm going to say, which is part of the book prospectus that I sent to the publisher. But then there really is kind of this magic of an organic process whereby, you know, I, I didn't know that I was going to encounter uh, happiness, a history by Darren McKinnon. That really came from that organic process. So there is truly something uniquely lovely about writing the long form that you can't get writing scientific papers. Right. And, you know, what you say is is, is true of, of writing in general. I mean, often telling my students and graduate students that you know, there's this conception out there, I think, that, you know, you go out and you do your research and then you develop your thoughts and then you pour them onto the paper. Uh, but what people who, who think that way don't realize is that actually the thinking happens at, as you're writing. Um, and so, as you say, you begin with a broad outline, but it's only when you, when you try to put those general thoughts down on paper and organize them lucidly and, and logically that you do the hard work it's necessary to think and in doing that hard work you often create so um, thinking is a product of writing uh, not just the, the consequence of it beautiful okay a few more questions now about history as a, as a discipline and how we could link it to the scientific method to evolutionary theory and then I think I've taken enough of your time can we are we okay for another five six minutes no, absolutely, absolutely. Wonderful. Uh, okay, so earlier you mentioned humanities as you were answering the question about you know the you know the the monograph being what is typically accepted in the humanities, Currency and of course, yeah. history of course is typically classified as a field within the humanities. But as I always tell people that are willing to listen, the scientific method is not something that res that is reserved for physicists or chemists. Right? A sociologist can be just as serious a scientist as a physicist. The reason why sociology might not be perceived you know as being as prestigious as physics in my view is because it doesn't have the consilience of physics in physics you have a set of organized ideas that we can all agree on and then re therefore we can build a core of knowledge we can disagree at the limits of that knowledge but there are no chemists that are for the periodic table and chemists who are against the periodic table whereas in the social sciences and certainly in the humanities we can disagree about pretty much everything right so you could have you know anti-science frameworks like postmodernism. you can have people who don't think that biology matters to humanity, to human behavior, whereas others like myself would say, how could you study human behavior without biology? So all this having said, I don't think that history need only be, you know, encapsulated within the humanities. I think you can be a historian who follows assiduously the scientific method. Can, uh, do we agree on that at least? 
Oh, completely. And, you know, I would just point out that in many, uh, many colleges and universities, my own included, history doesn't fall under the rubric of humanities. It's in the social sciences. Ah, okay. so I think of myself more as a humanist than a social scientist. But um, history has traditionally been thought of as a social science. And, you know, they're kind of there are types of historians that lead clo- more uh, lean more towards the the social sciences and humanities, and those that lean more towards the humanities than the. Although the I would, this is I guess a question that could be tested empirically. Although if you asked the the lay person mm-hmm. their view on this, they would think of history right. I'm going to write a book about World War Two, and I'm going to pontificate about a whole bunch of stuff that's rooted in some archival reality or whatever, but I'm not applying the scientific method. There isn't H1, H2, H3, and here is the data of how I'm going, right? So why is it that there is a disconnect between our sort of exemplar view, our prototypical view of a historian, and what you're mm-hmm. saying is clearly not that? Why is there that disconnect? Well, I don't know. I mean, as you say, it'd be interesting to test that, right, uh, empirically. Is this the view of, of history that people really have? Um, I, I don't think they would have had that view in the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, um, when history, you know, did very closely model itself on uh, on the sciences. And, you know, as you probably know, in, 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 in Europe, in France or in Germany, history is thought of as a science of Wissenschaft. And in, in German, you know, there's this distinction between the natural sciences, Naturwissenschaften, and the human sciences. Uh, and we sometimes translate Wissenschaft as science, which is, you know, not a perfect translation. It really means a coherent body of knowledge. But there's this conception that history is a body of knowledge in the way that physics is a body of knowledge, the way that biology is, is a body of knowledge. Um, there have been times in the the evolution of history as a discipline when it has looked to uh, the sciences and the social sciences uh, more kind of resolutely than perhaps it does today. So I'm you know think of the um, the, the the attempt in the early 20th century by uh, the French historians uh, around the Annal School to um, you know to to do. Uh, to, to compile large data sets to, um, uh, you know, to get real clarity on um, things like population and uh, mortality rates and so forth. And that kind of history uh, can often look uh, pretty scientific and right. aspects of the scientific method are certainly uh, incorporated. But other historians, I think, see their job um, precisely not to provide the kind of clarity and certainty that you uh, you alluded to with you know the reference to the periodic table um, but to rather show the contingencies the problems the uh, the, the, the doubts the gray area that form uh, around even uh, our apparently clearest notions and you know it, it takes both kinds of uh, people working in the world right uh, those who pose questions and problematize and those who provide answers and clarity and I think you know the general population likes the clarity. Um, that's, uh, you know, let's just, you know, read the executive summary and get the answer. Uh, and uh, problematizing often takes uh, more work and more effort and more time. And that's not something we have a lot of in the modern world. Fair enough. Now, let's link your uh, background in history to mine in evolutionary psychology. Are there many historians who utilize the evolutionary lens for studying whichever phenomena at whichever level of analysis. And maybe before you answer that, I can give you the one example. I, I mean, I can think of a few examples, but the, the one that I like best to quote is one by Laura Betzig. Have you heard of her? Do you know who she is? I, I, I don't actually know. Laura Betzig is a Darwinian historian, and she did a study. Well, she looked at despotic rule uh, historically via the evolutionary lens. 
basically mm-hmm. the idea being that despots monopolize sexual access to women and so on. Right. Uh, right. She also did a content analysis of the Old Testament showing that uh, depending on your social status in the Old Testament, you know, you're you're a prophet, you're a general, you're a king, you're a peasant, you're a slave, and so on. Then depending on your social status, determine the number of women that were associated to being your wives or concubines. And not surprisingly, the higher your social status, the more women you have, uh, which of course we know from evolutionary theory, the number one uh, metric of success for a man on the mating market is to have high social status. And so here what you're doing is you're taking real archival historical data and using an evolutionary lens to test specific hypotheses. Do we have a lot of this stuff in history or not Not. Not much? So, it, you know, that kind of work is done. It's not, um, it's not the kind of mainstream of the historical discipline. And I think a lot of my, many of my colleagues are are skeptical of it. I, I tend to be more open minded about it. I, um, I why are they skeptical? Before you go on, well, I think there's a there's a concern about um, you know, uh, 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 being too deterministic, too reductionist, uh, universalist. I mean, you know, I, I think there's a a concern about uh, universalizing uh, in the historical um, profession with good reason because what do historians do? They place things in context they look about they look at the particular um aspects and associations and characters of events people of times and show how those change uh in different places in different circumstances where social scientists are looking for continuities and universals that apply in all cases and all times and historians come at it precisely the opposite way so therefore there's a a, a slight reservation about those people looking for constants and universals um but i think you know when 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 people are careful you can can do some really good work i, I i'm familiar with the, the work of peter turchin i don't of know course, i do i know i know who he is yes Connecticut, and and I, you know he's not a historian and uh, uh, doesn't even describe himself, but he's clearly interested in historical dynamics and applying uh, cultural evolutionary theory to them. And I find his work, you know, tremendously uh, uh, thought provoking. And and I think there's there's more room for that marriage between uh, science and um, and and the humanities. Beautiful. Uh, last question: Is are there any? Uh projects that you'd like to use this platform to promote this is your chance to do so darren <laughs> i'm not you know I, I feel like i'm so fundamentally out of uh uh sync with the time because i i don't like the idea of self-promotion i you know i was on twitter for a while and i, I just can't bear to do it anymore because it just seems like it's people bragging about themselves all the time <laughs> so listen i'm a professor of marketing uh what what you, what you call bragging, I call marketing. So, but fair there enough. There you go. Well, you know, I'm, as I say, I'm out of sync with the the world and its times. But um, yeah, well, uh, we're all shouting, it's, uh, and uh, I'm, you know, just grateful to have the time and have a have a nice chat with you. Likewise, uh, guys, if you enjoyed this conversation, please consider supporting the uh, channel any way that you can. Darren, it's such a pleasure to meet you. You're only two and a half hours away. Hopefully, when the overlords yeah. allow us to travel, maybe we could meet and have a chat like this in person. I would I would love that, and as I told you uh, before, I, I love Montreal. So hopefully we'll uh, we'll connect there, or in Hanover, or New York, or some such. Cheers! Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank, thanks for coming. Cheers! Thank.